welcome to the Silicon Craftsman podcast. Oh, no, that's not the name. <laughs> welcome to the Wild User Interviews podcast, produced by the Silicon Craftsman Guild from Near with AVB. Today we have a very special guest, Rim. You probably have seen her all over the Telegram, Discord, every project, everywhere cool. I think that we, may, even though we have already been talking for 20 minutes, <laughs> we may have a quick recap because I am not sure if the technology is on our side today. Yeah, yeah. Let's- yeah, welcome, Rim. Thank you, AVB. I'm very honored to be here. No, the honor is mine. So we were just talking before the technology died upon us that the near community is really diverse and that I personally mm-hmm. love that over the last few weeks we've had the chance to work with people and connect with people from literally all over the world. Yep. We've got some strong pockets of people in Russia, Ukraine, Vietnam, you know, Europe, you name it. So I've heard in a very superficial way that Rim grew up in Korea and that she is in China now and I think she's traveled a bit so I was just you know suggesting as a starting point to get a bit of an overview of the origins story of of, of Rim. Yeah so a short recap would be that I was born in South Korea and then when I was young so around 7 to 10 I lived in the States in Virginia and that's why I have this very American accent and then I came back to Korea I grew up there graduated high school I went to university in Belgium this is when I studied I studied English I studied in studied philosophy. So I was in academia for about a good six years. I went to grad school and everything until one day my good friend Ozyman Diaz, who I studied together with in Belgium, said that near is the future and us philosophy majors have a place in it. Come join us. And I was like, that sounds interesting. So I said yes. And I've been here ever since. And it looks like crypto fits me. (laughs) Nice. No, thanks so much for the summary. I think it's a really nice overview and it just gives me so many prompts to go into. But I guess the first one would be uh, the silliest one. (laughs) Where would you say my accent sounds? Can you understand me? Is it hard sometimes? No, I feel that English accents in general, I I have a good time with them, except for Scottish accents. I, I have a very hard time understanding Scottish people. But in general, I think your accent, completely fine. British accent, completely fine. Yeah. Yeah, because I can totally relate with you because I grew up in Venezuela, but I went Mm -hmm. to a bilingual school, like an American Mm -hmm. school. So when I came to Australia as a young adult, everyone was like, oh, your accent is so American. And they would mock me. And I think over time, my accent has become a little bit more Australian. And it's not like super Australian or super strong, but... Sometimes people do say, dude, talk a little bit slower or can you like oh, modulate really? a little bit more? So I'm a little bit self-conscious with this podcast no, of, you know, speaking slow to make sure the... that everyone can understand. I Because I, when we first spoke, when I first heard you speak, I, I really thought you had a very articulate, very unproblematic, not unproblematic, but very clear English accent. I have never had a problem understanding you. Well, thank you. Unproblematic. If that is a threshold, I pass it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's awesome. We'll come back to the first time that, you know, we met, I guess, in person, quote unquote, (laughs) which is more over a call. I'm, I'm really interested with, 
I mean, once again, I, I guess that everything that I do and see and engage with, I see it through multiple lenses. So my first set of lenses is as a Venezuelan. I grew up in Venezuela. It is, you know, embedded within me. There is so much <laughs> in growing up in a country going through so much, you know, rapid change uh-huh. that just defines how you see the world. Yeah. And then I see everything through my Australian lenses. Same, I came here as a young adult, undergraduate education here, my professional life here. Mm-hmm. And I guess that my third set of lenses or four or whatever would be some as a lawyer, although not really because that is mm-hmm. exhausting and makes me want to die. <laughs> but the, the current one and the most important one is through like product and user experience mm-hmm. and just trying to understand things to the core especially reframing problems as an opportunity trying to understand people's motivations so i'm really intrigued when i come across people from other countries especially they have traveled around the world what their motivations or reasons were uh, to travel initially and Mm -hmm. yeah i get experience of having different places where they see themselves in the future Yeah, I think you and I may have some common ground in terms of why we both have switched countries, so to speak. And this is completely an assumption, but I ran away from Korea, basically, because as a child and as a teenager, I hated it. I hated it. I hated living in Korea because the education system is too competitive. It's too monolithic. And it was just not... I just didn't vibe with it, to be very, to put it very simply. And that's why I wanted to leave Korea as soon as possible. And I didn't, I couldn't find a venue ever since returning to the States to leave Korea until I decided to go to university abroad. And that's why I left Korea and I went to Belgium. So I was in Belgium for three to four years. And then during my studies, I discovered Chinese philosophy because in Belgium, it's basically just Western philosophy. And then I learned that the roots, kind of this Asian root that I denied maybe or had forgotten about, it came back to me. I I rediscovered Chinese philosophy stuff in Asian culture as something of philosophical interest. And then that's what led me to study in China. And that's why I'm in Shanghai right now. That is amazing. I mean, there is certainly an overlap, but I think is just to clarify to the listeners, when we say that we have something in common, it's not the specific about the circumstances. Mm-hmm. I think that we would have to take it one layer above. And I would define it, because I, I can relate with you, but the way that I would define it is not feeling like you belong yeah. in the, the context of the circumstances yeah. around you which can be loosely defined as a country. My experience growing up in Venezuela was really interesting because there was a lot of like social, political and economic change. Mm-hmm. But in many ways, I saw that all the that rapid series of changes, I saw that as a test on society mm-hmm. and the majority, quote unquote, signaling where they wanted the country to go and Uh what they valued and what they didn't value and i realized very quickly especially when i was a teenager and i could see the rapid decline of society (sighs) and the economy Um, the things that were rewarded in that country were not honest work and they were um, not intellectual rigor so i was like look i am a geek (laughs) (laughs) 
I enjoy learning. I enjoy working with people without fucking them over for money. <laughs> I decided to try my luck elsewhere. It's interesting because when I came to Australia, I started studying law because I thought that was not only an honest endeavor, first mm. wrong assumption, <laughs> but I thought that law was also like the most impactful career or profession Absolutely. that I could have. Obviously, later on, I realized that I was also incorrect. Lawyers are just hired guns. You have a client that you represent. But yeah, the the common theme would be traveling around the world, trying to find where you belong and where you want to contribute. I love that you reconnected with some of those Asian roots through Chinese philosophy. I'd love to learn a bit more what the difference between Chinese and Western philosophy is. But just before we dive into that, I think that is one of the common themes. I mean, this is only the second episode, but I suspect that it's going to keep coming up Mm -hmm. more and more because I keep seeing the pattern everywhere. And it is the value of having opt-in systems. If you grow up in a society and everything is monolithic and standardized and nobody values what they have, there may be some issues there. But when you have the chance to step out and really gain a different perspective of things and learn about topics more widely, then you can opt back in and you really value what you learn. And I think even with religion, there's an interesting like rediscovery process now, (laughs) especially in tech people. It could be through like stoicism or Buddhism. Like it it doesn't have to be religion in a a super traditional sense, Mm -hmm. but I think that a lot of people did take a step back and they were very agnostic for a bit and now they're rediscovering their own spirituality in different ways yeah i completely resonate and i think what you say makes a lot of sense for me and it's very special because this is the same theme and same realization that i would come back to over and over again throughout my years studying philosophy you know you the idea of philosophy critical reflection necessarily implies a certain distancing from your own position and from your own perspective. And that's exactly the common theme that you mentioned is probably going to come up in the future episodes as well, that what unites us together. Yeah, and I think that you've ended at an interesting area, which is people's perception of philosophy from the outside if they've never experienced it. And I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but most people would think of philosophy of a stoner looking out a window, <laughs> thinking about the immortality of the tree, you know, reverberating in the wind. <laughs> really? So people think us as much cooler than we actually are. That's what you're saying. It is a lifestyle. <laughs> and I think this it leads us in a really nice segue where we dropped off in the, in mm-hmm. the first half of episode which I think we lost due to poor technology about philosophy really has had a big role mm-hmm. within technology mm-hmm. and I think that is going to grow. Reid Hoffman recently had a two-part series actually in the Greylock podcast series where he was discussing his experience as an Oxford master's philosophy graduate and I think Peter Thiel also have philosophical studies and it was actually fascinating how if you look at the arc of humanity, <laughs> it's interesting how philosophy using your brain, to put it bluntly, mm-hmm. is always the beginning of a process. It's the beginning mm-hmm. of a journey. Yeah. And as we engage in those cycles repeatedly over time, 
we start to yield results. And I think that those results, you know, manifest themselves in a real physical way as technology. Mm. And that's why I think, and, and this is not just me, Reed also says this, so some people may say that I'm plagiarizing him. <laughs> <laughs> I think that that's uh, where it becomes so dangerous to have technology for technology's sake or yeah. to lose direction of where we come from as a society, the human traits and where we're going. And just before I let you in, <laughs> I think that very loosely, that is a lot of the efforts that we're taking, the Silicon Craftsman Guild, the Product mm-hmm. and User Experience Guild, because I am on a mission to bring more creative problem solvers into the mm-hmm. space. They'll already be in the product and design space more formally, but they may not be. Mm-hmm. So maybe we should include philosophers, set ourselves a plan to get more philosophers in. <laughs> I mean, I'm pretty biased, so I would say yes. Well, thank you. <laughs> yeah, it's a, I mean, it's a wildly different topic, but in terms of diversity and inclusion, I think that there needs to be all sorts of efforts and initiatives identifying where they may be needed. Mm-hmm. But I think that that diversity of ideas and live experiences, it's what it's most important. So yeah, philosophers are certainly underrepresented, I feel. Yeah, I think, I mean, I would really encourage finding philosophers or encouraging philosophers to join whatever it is that we are doing here in this space, because if you really put it down to its bare essence, philosophy is thinking, and you really need thinkers in kind of whatever you do, right? especially if you're designing a new frontier, designing a new space that has been unimagined before that hopefully millions of people will adopt. And you need thinkers and really good thinkers with a lot of experience. And I think philosophers in that regard would have a nice fit. And conversely, the reason that I find crypto so exciting and galvanizing is because it really quenches a thirst that I had Uh, that I could never fulfill in academia. So I always thought, and the kind of philosophy that I did was that philosophy had to be towards life. And that's reflected in all the philosophers I love, Nietzsche, Spinoza, Zhuangzi, Lao. And I could never realize it in academia just because of how academia is now an industry. You have to produce a certain amount of writing, content, participate in conferences. It's all about your credentials and what you can write on your resume rather than what you can really create impact on. So if you bring philosophers into a space like crypto or blockchain, they really can do something in which they, what they do has value and can actually make contributions. And I think a lot of philosophers really would want it, even if they don't realize it. Because I definitely, I was so quenched when I would, when I came into the crypto space and people were influenced and uh, affected by, by what I did. That's amazing. Well, I think we just have to get a really good dealer and offer <laughs> <laughs> some free, free brownies. I, I think it's fascinating. I mean, there's so many avenues that we can go down, but I've got an idea. From yesterday's podcast, I actually hashed out a couple of ideas with, with a guest, with, mm-hmm. with Oli, and we actually came up with some amazing ideas, which I'm going to be sharing to get more input from the community, but... I think we have some actionable points. So no pressure, but (laughs) 
I've got an idea which I think could yield something really interesting from this podcast. Okay. First, I would love to hear about your favorite philosopher and how it's influenced you or what do you find uh, most valuable about okay. him or her. Okay. Is that, should I start now? Yes, please. It's really hard to pick your favorite, but I would say I have a very strong attachment to Friedrich Nietzsche. I think because he's the one that really initiated me into philosophy. And I think more than anything, it was just the resonance between our energies or perspective on life. I think I was at a very troubled age when I was a teenager. And then someone gave me this Nietzsche book, Twilight of the Idols, and also an Antichrist. And I read it and just the spirit really spoke to me. And I thought, oh, this is what I want to do. I want to be someone who's able to critically reevaluate the given values of society and also create values and that being my own power. And on top of it, I just really love the spirit that Nietzsche represents, which is the affirmation of life. And that's really who I am in essence. I'm a lover of life and with both it, both its light and shadow. So I would say Nietzsche is definitely my number one philosopher for those reasons. That's really interesting. Let's make sure that you send me the, the name of the books so I can add them to both my personal reading list <laughs> and the show notes for this episode. Well, I think it is not a coincidence that Reid Hoffman also describes Nietzsche. Nietzsche. I mean, Nietzsche, you, should, you should have gotten straight A's in university just by being able to say his name. Yeah, I can't. Uh, but you know, he he also describes him as one of the most influential, both to him and mm-hmm. you know, he recommends um, his readings to a lot of entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. I think it has to do with creating those mental models, and, and we'll dive deeper into mental models in a bit. But Reid Hoffman goes as far as referring to Nietzsche as the patron philosopher for entrepreneurs. And I'll do some research because I think there is an actual book called The Patron Philosopher for Entrepreneurship or something, which has a series of, I guess, like guiding principles, maybe some abstractions of, you know, the the original thoughts and how that can be applied towards becoming a better entrepreneur. I think if we double click on the mental model speed, I love it because when you look at technology, I think that there is a similar sort of like cycle. You have people that are learning how to engage with computers and computers are amazing because they're like closed ecosystems. We remove all the insane variability and unpredictability of engaging with humans (laughs) with the open world and we keep writing out commands and code that executes as we tell it to and it's easier to improve in that sense. Mm -hmm. So what's interesting is that once people have hacked these you know insane systems at scale at some point they start looking inwards and the two trends that i've noticed uh, which i tap into lightly are biohacking Mm -hmm. people start creating parallels between a computer as a machine and the human body and they start to realize that the human body is also a closed ecosystem and there's a lot of processes which we understand And if you can control inputs, you may be able to control outputs and improve performance. So that is an area that I'm super interested in. I've done a bunch of stuff in that area. It's become a bit of a meme. (laughs) 
<laughs> but all those things do work. The intermittent fasting and low carb, high fat. Sure. There's, oh, I can tell you everything about it if you're interested. I'm a big fan of intermittent fasting, so we can go on for hours about this. <laughs> oh, we'll, we'll come back to that one. It's, it's definitely a lot to unpack there. And the second trend is around mental models, especially I've seen a lot of you know people on the technical side engineering, computer science, et cetera, that they feel like they're obviously very smart people and they've been able to go really deep into all these um, sciences, but they feel like they have an unexplored mind. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of material and very popular content. Things like the Knowledge Project by Shane Parrish, it is literally a podcast about mental models and, and mm-hmm. deconstructing decision making and you know how to engage with the wilderness of the mind. <laughs> so I think that there's definitely a lot of value, not only that philosophers could bring to the space, but that philosophy could bring to you know everyday operators. Would you agree? Oh, 100%. I mean, something that I always get stuck on from my earlier days in philosophy is Hannah Arendt is one of one of the more influential people in my life and something the way that she describes thinking and and its relation to action is that thinking is always a stop and think and that there is a certain opposition between pure acting being in the world and thinking especially in terms of philosophy and I think in the end you always want both You never want just one, and you always need both. So in this space, whether that's biohacking, whether that's crypto, whether that's entrepreneurship, you want really good thinking, really good reflection. And that kind of has to go when you stop what you're doing and then just take a step back and look at it. That's when you can think. And I think you always need that. And you don't need just philosophers, you know, division of labor, philosophers do the thinking, the rest of us don't. I think everyone should be doing a healthy amount of thinking. That's just my general stance towards these things. I mean, as a very broad proposition, (laughs) the more people we have thinking, the better, for sure. I love that you bring this up because I feel like there is constant tension in this space. So... You may have heard that in tech circles, people talk about maximizing optionality. They always want to be able to move from project to project or to change your mind. No one likes to be locked in. And I think that if we take one step back, why do people want to maximize optionality in the tech spaces? As opposed to my friends working as consultants or accountants or lawyers, that they're happy to have the same career for many mm-hmm. years. In it. And I think that it comes down to having what we may describe loosely as a founder mindset which founder mindset and philosopher mindset of critical thinking are the same. You assess the world, you are a non-conformist, you reframe problems as opportunities, and you want to have the freedom to act upon those opportunities. So I think that if you look at that founder mindset, it is amazing, but you can see how in the journey of an entrepreneur, that founder mindset only really applies either to a very small subsection of people, namely the actual founders, or the journey. So I'll give you an example. With the near ecosystem now, yeah. 
at what point do we have the founder mindset and we're out there innovating and creating amazing products and what stuff? And at what point do we transition into becoming operators? Mm-hmm. Where most of our day goes to the daily workload, which is ever increasing, of just keeping the machine going. But yeah. you're keeping the machine going in the same direction. And if everyone's busy on their daily lives, just keeping the machine going, well, who is taking the time to stop and reassess whether the machine is going in the right direction? That's such a super, that's a really interesting way to put things. And the first part, so I, I want to explain why I find it so interesting, because the way that you characterized founder mindset, it really just sounded like the plot of Plato's Republic. So you have this idea of the philosopher king and a very small few being able to be that. And the philosopher king being this founder of a society in order to be the most rational and most enlightened and most well-functioning. But this aspect is really interesting now that we transition into kind of a crypto, a decentralized model. Because in the Republic, you never talk about, okay, you had the philosopher king, and but now we want to decentralize that was never an option. That was never on the horizon. But now we have that. You have the founder, quote-unquote founder of Near, but we want to decentralize it. We want to transition into a more ecosystem, community-based governance. I think this kind of paradigm shift, in a way, is super fascinating. I, I, that kind of really made it hit for me, the way that you described it. Are we referring about Daddy Ilya? <laughs> <laughs> Zaddy Ilya. <laughs> Oh, yes. Well, look, this is something that, I mean, there's there's so much there. The first thing is that we have to acknowledge that everything that is being done in crypto at the moment is very Mm -hmm. new. So the notion of decentralization, we're exploring what it means. Decentralize what? Because even if you look at near something like treasury and handing out money, sure, decentralize it. Why? Because if you have a bottleneck or a centralized point of command, you may run into issues of money not being dispersed fast enough or not being dispersed into certain kinds of industries or verticals that the core team doesn't know about or doesn't care, like even just corruption. So there are some things that more people having access to or at least having a say in help. But realistically, let's be honest, I don't think we should be decentralizing the core tech stack that very few people are at the level of execution and knowledge as Ilya may be or other people in the core team. So I think that we're navigating that and we're both sitting in the ref now and we're starting to see the challenges of decentralized governance because there is a big parallel with the real world here, by the way. Once you govern, everyone wants power, everyone wants status, not many people want to execute. Not many people are able to execute. It is a fine line to navigate and an interesting challenge to solve ahead. Yeah, I mean, wait, so I remember way, way back when in my undergrad years, when Michael and I were cramming for finals together and whatnot, Michael, uh, Ozymandias, sorry, Ozymandias and I were cramming for uh, finals now and then. And he already, this was back in 2017. You already gave up his identity. How rude. <laughs> <laughs> the um, gone. 
I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. 2016. Okay, you know what? I'll let Ozzy in the next podcast. He can just reveal my birth date. I'll give him that since I revealed his name. <laughs> well, look, the way that I would describe pseudonymity is we don't need to know your birth date. We just need to know your star sign. <laughs> I'm a Leo, if that matters. <laughs> Oh, God, I'm taking notes. Okay, well, if you almost know, I'm a Gemini, clearly. To get back to my original point, Ozzy and I were studying for finals, and already back in 2017, 16, he was thinking about blockchain, how he can utilize blockchain technology into something bigger, something greater, a fundamental motivator, of ch- a driver of change in the real world. And he gave me like some resources because he was thinking about starting a company And the ideas of decentralization really resonated with me at the time, or was really intriguing at the time, because I was reading a lot of Deleuze. And Deleuze is like the postmodern father of postmodern philosophy. And he talks a lot about deterritorialization. And it has these similar notes. And something that he talks about deterritorialization is that there is never absolute deterritorialization. There are always pockets of re-territorialization while in general we are deterritorializing. And that's the way that I understand decentralization as well. It's not that there aren't any centralization. Of course, there has to be centralization. There can't be just pure decentralization. That would make no sense from a, both from a theoretical, but also practical standpoint. So you have these rather than the idea is that you don't have a central authority, a singular source of power, that you have rather pockets or little locuses of power. And I think that's the kind of model that Nier is really trying out with this ref DAO, with the Cheddar DAO, all of these different DAOs, that's the kind of experiment that we're engaging with. You've put it beautifully, and I like it that we brilliant minds think alike, because (laughs) when I mentioned that founder mindset, and to go specific, this is not specific to Nier, but we can provide specific example through Nier. Mm -hmm. When I question, okay, so who has the time on the day to stop and think about the direction of the machine if everyone is busy doing things? And that's where I think that you and I come in because we're members of the community where we chose to start our own initiatives and we Mm -hmm. have, as far as I'm concerned, total discretion on where we're going. And we have a direct line of communication with the Near Foundation. I'd like to think we have some sort of an influence, at least we have a budget. And I think that is very powerful. I think it's an example of the ecosystem growing in a way where I think as you have brilliantly captured in a way that sounded really smart. You've got pockets of deterritorialization. And I think we should defend that and we should protect that. And I really hope that I don't say anything in this podcast that gets me cancelled. <laughs> because I think that we do need the ability to, yeah, explore topics. And I don't see anything as criticism or as some people may say on Telegram or a Discord server, shitting on someone. <laughs> I see it as trying to bring out a better version of things and better versions of people. Yeah. Now, this leads us really nicely into the core topic of the evening. So <laughs> I think I'm going to start with tying in something you mentioned about your experience in academia yeah. and the way that it's being 
it has become an industry that only serves itself. Uh, mm-hmm. Those were not your words. But I think I'm summarizing, uh, and I've heard the same criticisms from a lot of academics. And I think that if I were to translate that into the more techie world, or I guess put that in the context of the tech world, and more specifically crypto, what I love is that we live in a unique time in history where we're able to take all the theories, the most avant-garde and complex and you name theories, and we can actually put them to practice mm-hmm. in real world ecosystems in crypto. And this is not just in the area of philosophy and governance. This is behavioral design. This is economics. This is technological frameworks. Like I just find it fascinating that even if you were to release a an NFT game, you can build in so much theory into yeah. the way that the, the game works and you release it to the world and real people engaging with it. That was it. <laughs> I, I guess I, I left that halfway through. No, I guess it, I was trying to find the, the best way to frame the question, but I was wondering what your experience has been in that transition from academia mm-hmm. to seeing putting things into action or or packaging them in a way that are more actionable whether they succeed or fail you get an outcome yeah i mean i mean we just discussed this kind of inevitable opposition between theory and action and it's what i love and my experience is reflective of that that necessarily you have to cut your thinking short at some point because you have to act and you have to act now, or there's a set deadline. And I think on a more personal level, moving from academia to this kind of crypto action-oriented field puts me in a position where I can't, I just have to let go a lot of ego, actually, that I want to be able to think through everything. I want to be able to clarify and organize everything before we make the best possible choice. Actually, the most reasonable thing is you learn as you go and then you hope that you don't fuck up, right? You just hope that you don't make the worst possible scenario. And I think that's the kind of wisdom that you earn when you're in such a fast-moving, action-packed industry. I wonder how many people have the avoid fuck-ups in their mindset at any one point. It doesn't seem very high, but it's okay. We're still learning. <laughs> I guess picking up on, you mentioned these NFTs, you can come out with an NFT game and then you can also reprogram it or program it with a bunch of other things that you want to apply that you only thought about in theory. And that's really interesting. I mean, I don't have much to say on the state of things because I still feel that I'm fairly new, but I would say it's really interesting to see on the one hand, you talk about mental models, you talk about biohacking, a lot of the things that I'm a lot of the things that you could talk about on in a different language in philosophy, but they're the same concepts that you can talk about in a different technical or biological language. So I love discovering those uh, similarities or lines of thought and then thinking, oh, what can I do with this? You know, what I learned back then, it might apply to this scenario. And also at the same time, it's super exciting because everything that I learned about merely in theory and only had hypothetical scenarios for, I can actually implement it and actually see how it plays out in reality. 
I mean, that comes with its own heavy consequences too, because you are dealing with people's money, people's assets and time and autonomy, but it is also very exciting as much as it is a challenge. I guess I'll start from the end. It's interesting that you mentioned money because I think that even that aspect, which is a barrier in the real world mm -hmm. to test things out, mm -hmm. to engage with people, in crypto we created magic money. <laughs> Internet beings. <laughs> we issue our own we issue our own tokens, we make up our own returns. Like it, it, it once again, it's just unique in its ability to play with all these concepts that you can apply in the real world, but you can I guess validate or, or start to play around in this mm -hmm. in this ecosystem. Mm -hmm. Now, um, I just want to really briefly because I made a note here, but I forgot to say it. I think while we were discussing decentralization, I think that a framework that I really like is thinking of decentralization as removing any one party's ability to mm -hmm. behave in a way that is detrimental to others. Yeah, and when you think about it in crypto. And, and I think this is where a lot of people get confused, especially maybe some of the newer entrants. I've been in crypto since 2013, active since 2016, 2017. Mm -hmm. The ultimate level of decentralization is what I call parallel innovation. If you see a project and you don't like what they're doing or you don't like the way that the project is going, Obviously, there's levels of complexity, but to a very high degree, you can just fork the code and deploy your own version. That's true. Or, you know, build something very similar, borrowing on components like composability and forkability. It's a huge component. So mm. I think that crypto being open source immediately, well, most of it being open source, immediately sets it apart from both standard technology and from the real world. I mean... I come from the, the law, and it is fascinating how all the laws are technically free. They're available mm -hmm. online. You can go and buy the little printed books with all the laws, and all the judicial cases are available for free because it's the law. It's meant to be available for everyone. But the legal industry has built barriers around it, mm -hmm. and they charge you six, seven, eight hundred dollars to you know get advice on it. So I, I do think that, once again, crypto really is moving us forward in oversharing. Code <laughs> is open source. Things are public. You can yeah. I, I can't believe that we're in a Discord with the Near Foundation team. <laughs> like, I've had DMs <laughs> with Like, it's amazing. So that was on the decentralization front. I don't know if you want to add anything to that conceptual notion of decentralization as parallel innovation. Yeah, I, I don't have much to say about parallel innovation. I think <laughs> that's why it's so new, right? This idea of decentralization, it's new for us, but it's new just in general. And that's why people, when something gets forked, they feel intuitively, well, this is illegal, right? You can't do that. You can't just fork my code and start something the same with a different front end, but you can because it's open source. And I think this kind of paradigm, which is so much of crypto and blockchain, requires a paradigm shift. And I would say, on the other hand, because it's open source, because it's decentralized, you have this bonus, like you just mentioned, that we were, be, we're in the Discord channel with Near Foundation. There is a certain direct channel. There's a direct mode of communication between the user who actually adopts the space and the creator whether that's a builder or an artist or a foundation person. 
And I think that kind of directness, straightforwardness is really a great merit. And I think a lot of what you mentioned that we've, we both identify as problems in the traditional space, whether that's the legal industry or the financial industry, these are all coming down in, within the crypto space. And that's amazing. It's amazing that we can just have this sphere where we're trying these new things out, like a sandbox in reality. 100%. I mean, this is a very specific example where I can give you my three perceptions or takeaways from the mm-hmm. different uh, lenses that I view the world through. So I can give you as a Venezuelan, as a product person, and mm-hmm. as a legal person. Yeah. And hopefully for people listening at home that we have no idea which they may fall into, there are some insights and, and actionable takeaways in either one. So as a Venezuelan, and this would basically apply to anyone, anywhere in the world, the first area of opportunity that I see in these decentralized parallel innovation world is that we are so early that there is massive opportunity in seeing what is being done in crypto broadly and then creating more regional versions of it. And this is as simple as creating a separate front end that caters for your people in your language, Mm -hmm. for whatever the case may be, and you plug into an existing smart contract. So we're not even talking about forking something, Uh although you could. So there's a lot of opportunity there. Obviously, you can also collaborate with the core team and translate, but there's basically endless opportunities in a hyper-regional way especially in countries with very acute problems with corruption or access to whatever may be, you you can really build upon what already exists. From the second perspective, from a product perspective, it's fascinating how in the traditional tech world, you think about a moat. A moat is something that protects your company or your idea, Mm -hmm. what makes us unique, what makes us special. And a lot of that is your technology or that you build a barrier right. around it. You own the data or the way that the systems talk to each other. You have an advantage over other people. Most of the things go away in crypto. The data is all out there or owned by the user. Yeah. The systems are all composable. They talk to each other. You can't really stop that. So from a product perspective, and this is why the guild exists and why I am so intense <laughs> about bringing that product and user experience focus to the space is because you need to be obsessed with the centric. You need to think about their experience and make it so that the experience is so good, they don't really think about going anywhere else. Even better, your experience is so good that no one else is thinking about building something better than you. We're entering into a hyper-competitive stage Right now, it is not happening because there's not enough talent in the space. There's not enough developers. And most importantly, there's not enough product people. But as more product people like myself and others that I'm joining ranks with start joining the space, the first thing they say is, this is fucking shit. It looks horrible. No one can use this. You bring two or three minds to any project, you can make it 10 times better. And that's without even touching the back end. That's just making the front end look better. So I think that... From a product perspective, we're going to see insane improvement over the next 18 months. And then the final one, which I'm going to be super brief because once again, I used to charge a lot of money for this and it still made me very unhappy. (laughs) 
the legal aspect of decentralization is crazy. It's getting crazy. What happens mm -hmm. if you write the code, but you don't deploy it? <laughs> somebody else deployed it, or somebody else is running it. Somebody else who we don't know is running a different front end. Like, it's going to get really interesting. I don't want to go down that one. This is not the legal guild. There is a legal guild. For those interested, please go join right. them. <laughs> <laughs> now, I have two proposals because okay. we're running into the 47-minute mark. I don't know how your timing is. So I absolutely love this conversation. I knew we were going to have a good conversation because from what I've learned about you so far, I know that you're amazing and we've got so many things in common, but <laughs> this has gone in ways I was completely not expecting and it has exceeded my expectations tenfold. I guess the lead up to my proposal, I think that there is a lot of commonalities between philosophy and product. I would very briefly describe philosophy as being the more pure, the more intellectual and product being a bit more applied to a specific mm -hmm. endeavor, more actionable frameworks, because, you know, we need to get things done within a, a certain time frame. So really briefly, I'd be interested to know, before the guild was created and before I started harassing people online, <laughs> what your experience with product has been, whether you're interested, some of the perceptions, misconceptions, things that you would like to learn. Yeah, I'd like to get your insights on that because obviously I take that as feedback. Mm. Uh, you mean near product or just product in general? We can start with product in general. And then if you have any specific insights and I know that you're working on a specific guild, so maybe we can segue into that, what your experience has been in setting something up in collaborating with people across other projects. You can go any direction that you want. But yeah, let, let's start with product in general. So I would say, okay, for me, product in general and thoughts on near products, they would go hand in hand because we talked about distancing just shortly before. You always have to be out of your original position to really be able to understand what it was. You never realize what it is when you're in it. And I think a lot of Web2 users will experience the same thing that I did, which is that when you move into the Web3 blockchain crypto sphere, everything you take for granted in Web2 in terms of UX and UI, you can't take for granted here, right? You, we're just getting that conversation started about actually caring about UX and UI. And part of what really got me hooked into Nier was that people like you, the mission statement of Nier is what you represent with your guild, is that it has to be usable. It has to actually have the usability that Web2 offers if blockchain is actually going to be the new frontier that we say it's going to be. And my, idea, my kind of experience thus far has come to the conclusion that this is something that we can't take for granted, but we do because we are so used to it in the traditional Web2 sphere that things are easy to use, that you can sign in with anything with your one Google account, that you have apps within a with it that you can access with your single account. All of these things are taken for granted and you actually have to care and you actually have to put in the effort within Web3 to make that happen because if you don't build it, no one else is going to. I mean, they will once you do, but if you don't take the initiative, 
it's just, it's not a given. So that's really what I love about Near, that they care about user experience. They care about usability, about being friendly and being easy to access. And I also really appreciate that your guild is dedicated to that because I think also when we look, we have conversations with developers, we have conversations with people who run these projects. And unfortunately, user experience does often come last in consideration because you have to build the thing first, right? That's your priority. So you have to have people like yourself that consistently insist that this has to be taken care of or else we will not survive in this space. Well, th- there's a few things there. The first one is that uh, th- there's basically two very different markets. There is the existing crypto market, and mm-hmm. then there is the potential decentralized market made up mm-hmm. of mostly people who are not currently in the market. So yes. with the existing crypto market, it, it's a tough battle because most of these people are very invested in the protocols. Yeah. And once again, I think that the level of insight from the Nier team is so high that they understand how deeply invested people are in protocols. And this is not just financially. They're mm-hmm. deeply invested because they built the tools. Sure. Everything that exists now, it doesn't matter how bad the experience is for the user. <laughs> it has taken a remarkable amount of work and effort to build the technical layer that we have now. Yeah. And they're not just going to dump all that. So I think that the efforts that we have with Aurora of really collaborating with the Ethereum community and enabling the Ethereum community to expand and and to continue what they've already done, that is brilliant. Mm. For the other communities, I'm not very hopeful that we're going to get many converts because I think that other communities are also lacking the product focus. Mm. And... If they are willing to accept a crypto experience with this, which is clunky, you've got weird addresses and you have to prove things 17 times yeah. and security is questionable, then Nier is not going to be appealing to them. We have mm-hmm. seen people that fall in love with Nier immediately. Mm-hmm. Those are the people who care about product. Mm-hmm. When I mentioned care about product, I love that the way that you defined it It's actually fascinating to me because it is very intuitive. You define product as what the user experiences. And I guess that there's two definitions for product. Your intuitive assessment of it, which is objective, it's what you can see on the screen and what you can actually do. But I guess that there is like the inner core of the definition, which is what I'm trying to bring forward to the guild, which are all the mental models and processes and frameworks and practices that enable the creation of that good product experience. So you can see how at the moment we're basically wedged right in the middle of Nier has built a tech stack that enables you to build really good product. But I feel like a lot of the operators in the space, because they're very small teams, they're mostly founder-led, most of the founders are technical, they may not have... The, the best know-how to to implement that product or they may be lacking some of the talent. Maybe they need a designer. You know, if you look at Mainbase, Mainbase is the perfect example. The technical stack is remarkable and they've created insane assets for the ecosystem that are going mm-hmm. to create next growth. They've got Mintbase JS and a bunch of other things. Their website looks a little bit shit. 
and their latest hire was a designer. I love them. I love them. And they know this. They're getting a designer. They're getting a designer. If you're not embarrassed of your first if you're not embarrassed of your first product, you ship too late. They did the heavy lifting first and now they're bringing in a designer. I think that sort of arc is common in crypto. And I guess that if there is anything that we can do to accelerate the product and design space, we'd love to do it. Now, where the proposal is heading is I've learned a ton of speaking with a proper philosopher. I love it that I've learned a lot from this conversation, but it's a kind of learning where you get a new concept in a new area, like philosophy, and you're immediately able to make a bunch of connections with other industries yes. or I guess other areas, product, life, this, that. And you end up with a very interconnected, rich web of yeah. concepts. So I've got a two-part proposal for you. Okay. <laughs> I know that we're both mad busy. So a new project is probably the last thing in our minds. So this is going to be, it is aimed to be a very light proposal. Okay. I don't want to scare you off. Why? How would you like for us to organize? Huh? No, I was just saying that this buildup was scary. So the first idea is how would you like for us to be a little bit unconventional and really push the boundaries and organize one maybe two workshops through the the guild on philosophy and we can do it as a panel you can present some things and then i couldn't bring in like a product perspective and maybe we can have an operator we can think of any combination that we think may be more uh, interesting to a wider audience but mm-hmm. i would definitely like to find a way to introduce some of these ways of thinking and even if it's just to get people to connect at a conversation that it's not all purely technical i think there could be even immense value in that as well i would love that i would absolutely love to do something like that yes yay i love it so we've got one proposal approved <laughs> hopefully we may even be able to rope ozzy yes he would um, love that. Yeah, I can actually see him as the the philosopher king. I wonder where his obsession with kings come from. (laughs) And now the second one is more of an open invitation to be actively involved. So one of the challenges that we have with the guild, as in the problem that we have set to solve our definition of done if we are successful, is to help people build better products. But... Mm -hmm that's there's so much you can do but that's very vague so Mm. what we see is required to help us achieve that mission is a bring more people into the ecosystem so we're thinking of how can we create pathways for people to go from i am very smart i have a lot of experience i am very ambitious i'm motivated i know that i can add value i just don't know where the fuck to start How can we go from that to fully functional place within a team or starting your own project? And then on the other hand, I think that there's also the learning path that may be more like industry specific. And this is both in product and in technology. So how can we create pathways for us to present these product 
frameworks and practices in a way that makes sense and it's easy to digest? And also, how can we showcase the technology that Neo has? When we say that Neo has a stack that allows you to build great user experience, what do we mean? How does it look like in practice? Mm-hmm. So to bring them all together, we're thinking of creating this kind of like cohort-based pathways where we give an open challenge. I'll give you a specific example. We're thinking of creating like a hackaberry. Mm-hmm. Hackaberry is going to be, we get a group of people and the challenge is Berry Club has been very successful. It's also been very controversial <laughs> because the board is not big enough and the economic um... incentives turf wars there's a lot of feedback that you can gather through the very club channel on discord so the challenge would be okay well let's get a bunch of people run through design thinking workshops ideation prototyping and then we document how you go from nothing to forking the code spinning up a new front end etc how does that sound well that sounds super interesting I think, I mean, I don't know the the project operator developer side of things, but it seems like they're probably overloaded with work, right? They don't have the bandwidth to do any of these things. So if there a group of people come up and offer the time and resources to go through these kinds of models and scenarios, I think that would be really great. Maybe I think a lot of them could potentially welcome that kind of initiative. Well, the open invitation is for you to be an active part of it, both because we could really appreciate your input, but also because you're so active with so many groups around the ecosystem. We're both in the RefDAO Council. You're providing feedback to Cheddar. Off it goes, which, by the way, leaves us to the last but (laughs) most important topic. You have recently had a bit of a of an upgrade no that's not the word (laughs) you've recently been promoted (laughs) to sounding worse (laughs) you've recently had the opportunity to double down in an area that i guess it's very dear and close to you and i think they can have a very big impact so if you can just give it a bit of a spiel on what the latest project is what we can expect and what you guys are looking for, if anyone listening here is able to lend a helping hand. Yeah, I mean, I'm really thankful for this conversation because I think it laid out, the, so if anyone made it to this, the end of this episode, I think the kind of tone of the conversation we had is probably the tone, if they are attracted to this tone, that's the kind of people that I would love to have conversations with and on board for this project and the project's name is Open Forest Protocol. So this is another project that actually Ozymandias is basically his baby and he asked me to join him full-time uh, as a community developer and the idea of the project is we're built on near so we're basically an L2 and this is, we provide a blockchain platform in order to measure, record and verify forest data. So this decade has been named the decade of ecosystem forest restoration and that means basically whether through planting trees or conserving or afforestation we need to restore the ecosystem in order to meet either the net zero target of 2050 or just to slow down climate change altogether 
And that's the kind of solution, technological solution that we want to offer to the forestation industry. For a lot of the times, the forestation industry uh, is faced with lack of transparency, lack of standardization when it comes to measurement, recording and verification. And because we know blockchain, these are elements that can be solved very naturally through the blockchain because it allows a public and immutable and transparent record of data. So the first foundation, and now just now we announced that we are officially going live, this project, project is happening. The first foundation that we're doing is we're through blockchain and through crypto incentives, we are streamlining a data system for forestation projects. And then I think what is super exciting, and this is not anything in the near term, it's very long term. What's super exciting is that all of this data that we record through reforestation or afforestation projects, they very easily lend themselves to carbon credit data. So you have all of this great data on blockchain, and then later, perhaps through a DAO vote, we could decide, let's start generating on-chain carbon credits. And that would solve a lot of the problems in the carbon market currently today. Again, lack of transparency, lack of standardization, lack of global connectivity, lack of liquidity. So I think that OFP, if successful, and we we really believe, the team really believes that it's going to be successful. It will provide a very necessary technological solution for today's problems in the forestation sector and also be the foundation for the new global carbon economy. I love it. I love it because it ticks a lot of boxes. I mean, first and foremost, it aligns with my worldview that we have problems that are old, old enough to the point that a lot of people just give up or we learn to live with them. But what I keep telling people is that as we get new technology, we have new tools to tackle this problem. So every time we get a new technology, we have to reassess how we're dealing with old problems. So just on that front, it gets me excited because it is a very mm-hmm. clear use case of a new technology and it requires new new thinking and new initiatives. Mm-hmm. It also gets me excited because from the near ecosystem, I think that it's a real problem to solve. You know, at the moment we are in the experimentation stage, we have some NFTs and some games, but I love that there are people thinking really big and starting to make headway into the technology. And yeah, I love it because it proves that philosophers are a really valuable piece to the ecosystem. <laughs> Finally. Thanks so much for that, Reem. We will no doubt have a part two and we'll keep in touch. Any other cl- closing remarks? Yeah, I just want to say, if you are interested in philosophy, the kind of conversation that we had, and really, if you're someone that's excited for thinking out the kind of world that crypto can bring, and you're concerned about climate change, of course, please contact me. We now have a guild for OFP, just like we have a guild, Silicon Craftsman for Near, And we just want to be the, the early community of OFP who are thinkers, researchers, and crypto natives who care about climate change so that we can get together and just let's just talk and design things and be founders. Definitely get in touch. As we mentioned before, the crypto community is extremely open and supportive. Near is a climate neutral blockchain and I think it says a lot there there are some funds available to get these initiatives going. So 
heaps of opportunities for you to get involved. Thanks so much, Reem. We'll keep in touch and yeah, really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. See ya.